podcast one production. I'm automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. I'm in New Zealand for this episode, about an hour from Queenstown at Highlands Motorsport Park. It's one of the newest race facilities in this part of the world, etched perfectly into the stunning South Island scenery. This is an enthusiast paradise with everything they need, apartments and properties where owners keep their cars for track days. There's a cart track and a brilliant museum. It's owned by Tony Quinn, the multi-millionaire business success story behind VIP Pet Foods and the revival of Darryl Confectionery. TQ can hold his own in the boardroom, but he's probably best described as a tough, no-nonsense boss who doesn't mind rolling his sleeves up and getting amongst it. Walking around here, you're likely to find him in shorts and boots rather than Hugo Boss. Never judge a book by its cover, as they say. Our chat is part business part cars and racing. I know that many of you have your own businesses and often listen while you're on the road, so I hope you enjoy that side. TQ has never forgotten his upbringing in Aberdeen in Scotland, where he developed that trademark hard work ethic. His grandfather was a stowaway who went from Ireland and eventually ended up in America working for the automotive manufacturer Studebaker. It really was humble beginnings for the family. Yeah, he did, because um, it's hard to understand, but, like, in Ireland, they didn't get weight. I think they got a shilling uh, twice a year to go to the market. When the market came to, you know, like the circus came to town or whatever, they would... Some of the stories that I could tell you are quite, you know, horrific in modern-day terms. They used to put straw inside their trousers, between their legs and their trousers to keep themselves warm in the winter. In fact, I don't, I don't even know how you how you walk about like that. Mm-hmm. But some of the stories were... Look, there's no doubt there was a bit of peppering of, um, you know, Irish stories, <laughs> but there was a fair degree of truth with the whole thing too. His, his grandfather or father um, was high up in the education department in Ireland. But in those days... Um, a lot of the sons and stuff just got to work on the farm or you went home to work, you know. You weren't put for further education or university or anything like that. It was go home to the farm and work, you know. So, but, you know, he was a character and he took us to Ireland for a holiday once when we were children and left us. Yeah, and he would come back once oh, a For week. weeks too, wasn't it? Yeah, he left us. He, he went for two weeks, and this is the days without mobile phones or even communication, really. So he told our parents that he would be away for two weeks and he would be back for school to start, so we'd start school. Anyway, we went away. We were away for six weeks, and we would only see him once a week. He would leave us in the village, and the villagers would look after us, He'd come back once a week. I, I'll be honest, he was definitely out and about with the IRA or Sinn Féin and stuff. He was, there was definitely stuff going on. Okay. Um, we were totally ignorant to the whole thing, but on reflection, that's what was happening. Um, and then, you know, we went back to our parents who didn't even know how to get hold of us. Mm-hmm. We'd been gone. School had started for four weeks and they didn't know where we were. And I know, it's, it's like... That's what happened. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I lived in a wooden caravan. Mm. 
till I was 14 years old, like a gypsy caravan. I mean, it doesn't seem that long ago, but it was, it was clean and tidy. You know, people say to me, how did you do that? You know, that must have been terrible. It wasn't. It was clean and tidy. And it was a roof and it was a house and we had a 12-inch black and white television with two, BBC One and BBC Two and it was fine. You know, I'm fine. My sisters are fine. You know, it's all good. One thing you and I, I don't, I wish I had your business skill, I don't share that with you, but one thing we do have in common is Aberdeen in Scotland. My grandfather grew up there. Mm-hmm. I've been there. That was home turf for you, mates. So when you're talking about the caravan and things like that in those early years, that's where you were. Yeah, absolutely, Aberdeen. That's where I went to school and that's where I grew up. That's where I met my wife, you know, and started our family. I was in business there, was very successful there in business. And really how I got my start in business was not... My dad had a pet food company. My dad, God bless him, was a terrible businessman, uh, a great guy, great visionary, had great um, energy, very creative. My mum was very conservative. She had to pay the wages. She didn't have enough money to pay the wages. So I learned, I grew up getting both sides. You know, my mum had had to have the money to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. My dad would spend the money before my mum got it. So it was like, it was an interesting um, environment. And I think it did me a lot of good. Because I understood that in business you had to make money, but you also had to keep going. You had to keep um, new ideas, you know, keep the thing going, moving, you know, with lots of momentum and encouragement. And you have to believe in what you're doing, even if everybody around you doesn't think you can do it. And convey that. Yeah, and you have to, you have to, it's like a good general. You have to convince the troops that we're doing the right thing. Let's charge mm. at first dawn. <laughs> you know, I, I think every good general has fed his troops well mm. and given them uh, confidence and inspiration that we're going to win. And so I grew up in that environment. It was really good. But my start in business wasn't really um, through my dad at all. Um, I, uh, my, the, my, the family accountant... Uh, who was in town recognised he liked he liked um, my style he liked what I'd been doing I was with a friend I was joining cars smash cars together and selling them and doing all that stuff you, I was all you, 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 and you were doubling your money on that some yeah, of those places. yeah look it was it was the halcyon days it was the good days none of them fell apart <laughs> no no we did it right I mean Jordy my mate he was a, a head mechanic with uh, Vauxhall and um, no no we were doing it right and we the, can I tell you a wee story about that so I had this BMW that my mate who was a wealthy butcher's son he crashed his new BMW, right? But he crashed it at the back, right? So the front was perfect, wrote it off. So I bought the BMW from him, right? So anyway, it was easy to find the rear of a BMW, yeah. right? Because most people crash at the front. Yeah. So happy days. So we bought this, this other car and joined it through the A-pillars and across the floor and stuff like that. Perfect job. I ran it for about six months. But when I come to sell it, um, you know, and no problem, sell the car, it was a good car. But this guy said, I don't, I can't work it out. The guy that, I don't think he bought it, but he said, I can't work it out, it's a bit strange. 
He says the lights, the front lights are from a um, <laughs> from 1972, whatever it was, and the back lights are from a 1971. He says, I don't, I don't quite work out how it worked. And that's a true story. He, I don't think he bought it, but the next person didn't know, so we sold it to them. But So I was making money like that, but my the, t- the accountant, who was a family accountant, um, had a customer uh, that made signs called Albert Loftus. Mm-hmm. And I was in, in, in Gordon Lefevre, who, who treated me, took me under his wing, as well as a lot of other younger people in town, um, to, to foster them. To, you know. And um, anyway, he said, would you be interested in a sign business? And I thought, uh, well, yeah, I suppose so, you know. He was one of those kind of guys, if he asked you a question, that meant, uh, yes, yes, you know, <laughs> you didn't say no. So I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I bought this sign business. Best thing I ever did, because I'd been living in the pet food world with my dad, mom, and all the staff, and kennels, and all that kind of stuff. Well, I bought this sign business, and I reckon I learned everything there is to know about signs in four or five weeks. You know, I think the apprenticeship was five years, but I reckon I could make a sign, do everything with a sign, sell a sign, put it up, everything, within bloody four or five weeks. And that business, when I bought it, um, had two guys working on the floor and a lady in the office, and she was leaving, because, you know... Because what happened was Albert Loftus died, had a heart attack, taken off his overalls to go home for lunch. And so anyway, I bought it, and um, within two years, it was the biggest in Scotland. It was massive growth with the oil exploration and production and North Sea oil. It was fantastic. Uh, But it got to the point, I had 27 sign makers and, and five people in the office, and you try and keep 27 sign makers going with work. And this is in the days before emails and mm. all that stuff. So you had to do contracts and tenders and stuff. And you were never quite sure what was coming in. And, you know, the mail back in the days, you got actual letters and everything through the mail. Mm. And some days you would, you know, you'd have nothing in the job box, nothing to do. And the next morning you would get 10 jobs come in. You know, like it was, ah, you know... It's all the pressures of being in business and stuff like that, but I was making money. Mm. Something that my dad had never really um, mastered. Mm. You know, he, he was good at spending his money, but he could never actually make it and, and be, you know, consistent, if you like. So I had a new Fiat, you know, he, he had an old bloody Rover or some bloody thing. Well, what did you have? It was a 131. 131S. It was. Tell, tell us yeah. more about that. What was it? No, it was just it's silver. Yeah. It was but silver. Brand new, brand new car, nice. yeah. And, um, I mean, when I see them now, I think, geez, what an ugly car. But, <laughs> but it's very square. But, um, no, it was good. And, um, you know, obviously met Christina and started a family. And, but how I came to Australia is quite, I find it quite interesting. Our main electrician that did all the neon work uh, in the business was a union, a staunch union advocate member. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw him sitting in a lay-by when I was coming back. And, you know, we're busy. 
So when he got back into the shop, I said, mate, Jim was his name. Jim, why were you sitting in the lay-by when you could have been back here helping us out? No, no, I'm due such and such minutes every hour or something. And I dotted them up. And I thought, jeez, really? And the business was getting big enough that, you know, you kind of lose control. Not lose control, but you lose that direct deal with the guys and you know it becomes less of a family Mm -hmm. and there's factions within the factory that you know start developing and I was a bit sick of it to be honest Mm -hmm. and a guy from Chevron came in and uh, he was a good customer and I got on well with him and I says mate what are you doing what are you up to because where are you going next because I want to be where you guys are going next Mm -hmm. and he said oh all the talk is Perth, Western Australia. That's where we're heading next um, to do the West Australian oil basin thing. And I, th- I said, oh, right. And I always liked Australia. Mm-hmm. Like, you know how you do school projects and stuff? Mm-hmm. And geography was quite a strong subject of mine. And I liked Australia. It was a part of the Commonwealth. And you do these projects about the Australian stuff. And, that. and you know, I thought, fucking Australia. How good would that be? So this is true. I for- I I. Um, went home to Christina and said, hey, um, we're going to Perth. Just and, like that? Yes, this is true. And she was pregnant at the time. And she said, what, Perth in Scotland? Because there's a Perth in Scotland. <laughs> I said, no, Perth, West Australia. And she said, what, for a holiday? I said, no, we're going to go and live there. We're going to create a new life in Australia. And to be, to be you know, there's a few things happening. I thought I was invincible. Mm. I thought, how cool is this? Mm. Like, business is easy. I'm making money. Customers are coming in. It's easy, right? Money in the bank. I was making more money than Maggie Thatcher was getting paid. And I thought, how could that be Mm. possible? She's running the country, dealing with all the miners and the problems and everything else. And here I am making signs up in Aberdeen, making much more than Maggie Thatcher's making. It's stupid things, eh? Anyway... Um, so you, you clearly thought, I can take the same thing and transplant it at the opposite end of the earth. Is that what you were going to do? Yeah, so he, you're, you're, this story is going to get bigger and bigger, but absolutely, that's what I thought. Because back in, this is 1979, 1980, um, back in those days, everybody in the UK thought that Australia was 20 years behind. Yeah. That was the way it was, you know? You'd go out to Australia and there would be corrugated iron fences and houses and older cars and all that kind of stuff. And it was just, that was the word. That was that was how it was. Now, remember, no Google, no Wi-Fi, no, no information like that. If you wanted information, go to the library and sit down and read a book. I didn't have time for that. So I'm saying, nah, off to set. I'll be five years ahead of everybody else, or 20 years ahead, but at least five. I'll be ready for the boys coming with the oil exploration because there's a difference. Oil exploration is much more lucrative than oil production. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I'm interested in the exploration bit. So, off I, off, so Christina, so the other story is I picked up the phone, phoned, um, I can't even remember the name of the company in Glasgow that was like the second or the next biggest or you know just as big sign company in Glasgow and said hey I'm going to sell this business are you interested they jumped in the car drove up which takes about two and a half hours drove up within half an hour we'd done the deal and I sold the business 
and property and everything. And so again, home to Christina, right? The flights, because she was, we flew when she was seven months pregnant on the last day that she could fly. In those days, you couldn't fly past seven months pregnant. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is now, but so we flew on the last day that she could. Arrived in Perth at midnight, right? And took a taxi to the hotel. But when I got to the airport, because we had two, two little kids and Christina's pregnant with the third. And when I arrived at the airport, there's all these pretty fancy signs. Mm. And I'm thinking, oh, because it's an international airport, they must import them from America or... Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yes. From England, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but they were pretty good quality modern signs, you know? And I'm thinking, oh, okay, fine. So I get to the Flag Motel in Belmont and Christina puts the kids to bed. And in those days, flying with a family, stopping off in Bombay and they open the doors and the stench comes in and it's pissing rain and it's, you know, it was, it was not rough or anything, but it was what it was. Anyway, she put the kids to bed and I did what every good businessman does when they arrive in a new town or new city or new country. You grab the yellow pages. And the yellow pages were such a Bible for business. You had to be in the yellow pages or you're buggered. So grab the yellow pages and first thing I do is look up. Um, well, it's a funny kind of story, but because I was a Ford Escort guy yeah. uh, in Scotland, I had a couple of Ford Escorts and I liked them. I'm flicking through the page, yellow pages and there's these pages and pages of Escorts, but they were women Escorts. <laughs> <laughs> Not Mark II's no, or... No, and it's like, whoa, I've never seen that. Like, that didn't happen in Scotland, you know. Anyway, I got to signs. Oh, my God. There was... So in Scotland, I had half a page, and yet I was a king, right? Uh -huh. King me, I was yeah. that. King Loftus. And there, there would have been 12 pages of half pages, sign companies, there was, in the company that I went to see, was a company called Project Neon. And they had, in one of their claims, like, you know, built-up letters and engraving and all that, computer-cut lettering. I didn't even know what that was. I had no idea what that meant. This is not due diligence. This is realisation. This, this is the moment before you start crying when the kids are in bed and the wife's in bed. Mm. I... So I went to see Project Nian. They were five years ahead of what we were. Nice. Perth, Perth, generally speaking, is a pretty progressive town mm -hmm. in WA. And they were well ahead of Scotland. Wait. Anyway, I spent... It, there was four years of my life there. I mean, I ended up mowing lawns, which I enjoyed, but there was no real future in. Mm -hmm. um, but I cried. On that, in that first six months being in Perth, I cried... Uh, quite a lot and I think um, during that stay in Perth I think if it was today and we had medical intervention I am pretty sure that I would have been depressed like uh, yeah I, th I think there was moments of what have I done so how did you dig yourself out of that then yeah well I don't know but I, I guess I just boxed on mm. and um, there's a lot of you see in Scotland you trust somebody that's the way you're brought up. If somebody says, I'll sell you my guitar for $10, mm -hmm. 10 pounds, well, 
You go on Sunday and you give them ten pound and they give them the guitar. Mm. Whereas in Perth at that time, if you said I'll give you ten bucks for your guitar, they'd say, Oh yeah, okay. You go back on Sunday with ten bucks and they'd say, No, I sold it for twelve or whatever. You, do you know? Mm. And I don't want to. Um, there was a lot of people um, floating about Perth that were unaccountable for a lot of things, and this was this was in the days when Alan Bond was around, right? And you were reading the paper. And uh, he was doing billions and millions, and he was a sign writer too. See, so I'm going my back. So, to, to recap, the oil never came. The oil guys never came to Perth because there was other places, easier places, better. I think they do have lots of oil there, mm. but they just cap the wells and save it for a rainy day. So anyway, they never came. So I was alone again, you know. So I, I did a few different things, but years later. When I was in uh, Australia, I got a phone. I got I got an email. That I'm I'm going forward thirty years now, uh, and I'll come back a bit. But thirty years on, I got an email from the somebody uh, Michelle or something saying that Alan Bond would like to have a meeting with you. <laughs> and, and you know, like in my position at that time, you got a lot of. Uh, correspondence from people that wanted to pick your brains or I've, I've got a great idea, you know, I want you to invest in it and all that stuff. So I basically, I was very cheeky, I went back and said, yeah, sure, if it's Alan Bond that won the America's Cup in 1983, happy days. If not, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. Well, yes, it's the Alan Bond that that uh, won the America's Cup in 1983. Now, this guy had been in prison and all sorts of things and stuff. And I said, what does he want to talk about, you know? Um, oh, he's got a business in America that he wants to talk to you about. I said, licorice business. Yeah. So by this time, I had Dada Lee. And I said, oh, sure, that would be great. Well, I can tell you, it was it was scheduled for half an hour. Two and a half hours later, we're still chewing the fat. I found him an absolute delight, but I was so glad that I knew his history yeah. because if I hadn't, I'm sure I would have bought a tin mine in Nicaragua or whatever, Mozambique or something. <laughs> he would have sold me something. Wow. He was the best salesman I've ever come across. And he was 72 or 74 at that time. Yeah, he was a character. I loved it. I loved it. And I asked him, I said, how did you get on when you were in prison? You know, like, how, how did that work, you know? He said, business as usual. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> and he meant it. Like, he was... He was cool. And do you remember why he went into prison? Mm. He, he, amnesia. He couldn't quite remember. And I'd arranged with him to go and visit his business in America, but I wasn't to tell his general manager that I'd had a meeting with him and stuff like that. And, and I said, yeah, OK, well, I won't say anything like that. Then I won't mention that we've had this meeting. And he said, what meeting? <laughs> He was as sharp as, but I found him a delight. Research has shown that the fastest car on the planet and the one you can drive the hardest is a hire car because you know you don't have to pay for the servicing. So go back to Perth again, I'm mowing lawns, and I was depressed. I, I'm sure this wasn't for me, you know, Perth. I didn't, I didn't like it. The summer came and it was 40 degrees for three weeks and all that stuff. I didn't like it. 
Um, I didn't do badly there, but I didn't do well at all. Mm -hmm. And what I was doing, I was mowing lawns for people, and there was a fair amount of Kiwis there. Um, Then I got talking to them and stuff, and I quite liked the Kiwis. I thought, these are a good bunch of people, you know. They were all over there for the mines and stuff like that. And um, I said to Christina, we've got to go somewhere. This is not for me. Perth is not for me. Um... I didn't go. The, I didn't travel to the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Right? Strange, but I didn't. I just thought Australia was Perth. Like, yes. th- th- it's all the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, we. Um, I said, I'm going. We need to go either New Zealand, South Africa, Canada. I need to get out of here, or maybe back to Scotland. And going back to Scotland, although you'd have your tail between your legs and stuff like that, at least I knew the whole deal, mm-hmm. right? So, I took a trip back to Scotland. And um, just to make sure that we're what we're going to do, I went there three days later, or th- I was only there for a week, and I very quickly decided, no, nah, we're not doing that. We're not going back there. That's mm-hmm. just not right. Mm-hmm. Um, Australia and that Southern Hemisphere thing is much better for the children, a much better life, you know. Mm-hmm. An ordinary guy can have a house and a boat and, a, mm-hmm. and go on holiday and travel a bit, and it's, it's a good life for a working guy, you know. Mm-hmm. It's much better than Scotland. Mm-hmm. So, okay, well, off do we go to New Zealand. And, it, yeah, I'll tell you the truth. I arrived in New Zealand and I didn't really like it. I thought, oh. First shop we went to was uh, Three Guys, which is now Pack and Save. Mm. And in those days, you had to, with a felt pen, you had to write the price on the packet mm-hmm. and take it to the counter. <laughs> it was like, honestly, it was like stepping back 10 years or whatever. It was, it was whoa, far out. But I loved the country and I think I took eight hours of green video. Just... Because I'd been in Perth for four years yeah. and everything's kind of dry-ish. Mm-hmm. Cows, oh, look at these cows, look at these sheep and we're taking videos of stuff. And Anyway, long, long story short, the house in Perth sold when we were in New Zealand. So it was like, far out, what do we do now? Mm-hmm. So we came to New Zealand both quite reluctantly, Christina and I. There wasn't... Mm-hmm. Years later we agreed with each other. You know, I didn't really like it and mm-hmm. she said I didn't really like it. But what happened when we came to New Zealand? It was like a breath of fresh air. I, uh, I talked to a few people and um, we got back into the swing of things and got back into business. And it started a, a, a fantastic nine-year journey. The first year in Dargaville, met some lovely people, like really Kiwis are, I yeah. love Kiwis, good people. And um, some lovely people got going, with you know, a lot less money than I had and uh, just boxed on and had some... I remember the first Christmas that we had in New Zealand, we'd sold a lot of product, right? It was, it was drums of tallow that we'd sold. We'd set up this little business called Fat Man, picking up waste fat from chip shops and stuff. It's like stuff you wouldn't do now, but that's what we did. And anyway, what did you say when you were younger? There's money in shite. Is that yeah, what you used to well, say? The, well, there still is. Yeah. There's, there's actually money in everything. Mm. You've just got to find it. Mm. That's the trick. Mm. You got to find it. Mm. I mean, there's gold out in those hills, but you know, you got to find it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the first Christmas we had, I got the check for our first look, which was four thousand dollars, right, for our first sale. And because um, in New Zealand they pay you on the twentieth 
of the month following, right? Mm-hmm. So we gave them the invoice in November. They paid on the 20th of December, mm-hmm. right? Now, I hadn't got Christina anything for her Christmas because, you know, you guess like that. Complacently sets in pretty quickly. Anyway, I hadn't got anything. Well, I got this check in the mail. I thought, oh, great. So I wrapped up in a little wee parcel and I gave it to Christina on Christmas Day and said, it's something small, but it's worth a lot of money. And she thought it's a ring or something. Because she's saying, why did you waste money on a ring? Like, we don't need a ring. or yeah. And she opened it up and it was a check, first check to Fat Man in New Zealand. And we banked it and away we went. And, you know, in, in my nine years of New Zealand, I, I struck up many, many good friendships with many people because I, I was a contributor and I delivered on my promise, Mm -hmm. which is one of the main things that you have to do in business. Mm -hmm. And anyway, it was a great journey. Eventually got back into pet food, forced, may I say. And look, there's a whole other backstory to all this, but I'm not going to get into that unless you want me to. But there's a a whole lot of experiences in there Mm -hmm. that were golden, you know, just golden. But anyway, um, got back into pet food, and I couldn't fucking understand how my dad couldn't make money making pet food because I was, I was away. <laughs> I was off and running in New Zealand. Mm. And it, within like four years in New Zealand, I had this, um, well, it was a very, very good and profitable pet food company up in the north, and I was flying, and we did all sorts of things. Um, we also had a chip business that we sold to Mr. Chips, and it was just a fantastic journey it, to, 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 to a point where um, I thought about going into local politics because I, well, I thought... Tony Quinn? Yeah. I at the Beehive in New Zealand? No, well, no, maybe just not local Beehive. Stuff, just local, just local stuff, because I was annoyed at the time that it took to do stuff that was so obvious. Mm-hmm. Do you know, like, I think in your mid-30s, you, you get to that point, you know, you think, why can't we just do that? Mm. You know, why can't we have a hit squad that go about fixing things for people. Why do we have to have a big discussion about things? Just make it happen, yeah. So anyway, but thankfully I didn't enter that. And um, we got the opportunity through Big Fresh in Auckland. So we used to sell pet food to Big Fresh in Auckland. And a guy called Roger Willoughby was the general buyer. And he said, look, we're going to open up in Australia. Um, I'd like you to think about exporting your product to Australia. Mm-hmm. I want you to go to Sydney and uh, have a look at our store there that's just opened. Um, see what you think. So, yeah, perfect. So we hadn't been on holiday forever. So we boarded the kids out with friends and me and Christina went to Sydney. And this is in the 90s, I think. Late, yeah, 90, 94. We went to um, King's Cross instead in King's <laughs> because here we are from Wongre in New Zealand going to the big smoke we thought oh, let's go to King's Cross we'll stay there well she's yeah we'd never seen any of that stuff where we came from yeah. not even in Scotland so it was a real eye opener and I loved Sydney I loved it I thought how cool you know you do the multiplying in your head you think how many people are here mm. oh I can do this and, that. and we went to uh, the shop uh, Big Fresh in Leichhardt it was and a, a pack and save in Wongre would have you know eight tills with four people deep you know these guys had 16 tills with 16 people deep mm. it was just bedlam and I thought my god I can make money here so 
I said to Christina, I want to come here. I want to do this Australian thing. I want to make it here. Mm. I don't want to send it from New Zealand. That's not going to work long term. I want to do it. And she said, one last time. Yeah, because she, yeah, they get settled and the kids at school and everything else. And she says, oh, we'll do it one more time, one last time. But, but, I said, yeah, we have to go to the Gold Coast because my parents had ended up on the Gold Coast. Mm-hmm. And at that age in your career with teenage kids and stuff, um, you need help. Yep. You need grandparents, right? You need all that stuff. And she said, as long as we go to the Gold Coast, that's fine. And I didn't want to go to the Gold Coast because it's the Gold Coast, you know. You go there for holiday, not for business. But anyway, it was the best thing that she ever said to me. It was the best ultimatum that she ever gave me. And the story of VIP is well documented. And, uh, you know, basically we started with nothing 21 years later. Sold it for four hundred and ten million. How many staff did you have at the end? Uh, eight hundred and fifty or nine hundred and fifty, but that was across the chocolate thing as well, the Dalli thing as well. But just on the pet food, it had five factories going twenty-four hours a day, five days a week. And one of the things that I'm not really credited for, and I, I don't mind, um, as well as the pet food. Um, kangaroo meat was quite a big ingredient mm. in uh, pet food and when we entered the kangaroo business in the bush it was a terrible state mm. it was an awful business mm. full of rogues and rascals and just Irishmen it must have been no. <laughs> um, and what, we, what I, me and my, my general manager Rex Devantier did was we cleaned up that whole business mm. and we actually turned it into a human consumption business that used the scraps for pet food. Mm-hmm. And that was a successful business. You know, uh, my dad used to say that everything you touch turns to gold. You've got the Midas touch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not that I want to... I'm, I'm humbled by that, and I don't think that's really accurate because there has been a couple of failures. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no doubt that the old saying, the harder you work, the more successful you become, mm-hmm. has some merit. Mm-hmm. and should be given some thought. You know, people, people ask me, you know, where, where should I invest or what should I do and stuff. I don't know. I don't have the answer. I don't have a pink fairy wand that I wave about anywhere. Mm-hmm. I just say, and, and I think Jamie Winkup's grandfather told him, to win, you have to work harder and longer than your opposition. And it's as simple as that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole heap of other stuff. Mm. So I don't want to drive this, but, you know, business is business, and I find it quite easy, to be perfectly honest. You have to surround yourself with good people if you're going to employ people. Mm -hmm. Do not waste your life and your time with people that can't do it and Mm. can't keep up. Mm. You're just killing yourself, Mm. and you'll fail. So get good people around you. There are three things that I can pass on to people about business. I call them the three pillars, but I'm sure you can call them whatever you like. The first thing that is important is your brand, yep. right? You are big on that, aren't you? I'm big on brand because it's a brand that people want to buy and it's a brand that other, business, the other businesses will want to buy, mm. right? Mm-hmm. They won't want to buy if you're just ABC cleaners. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Oh, well, maybe they will. But, you know, it, you've got to put some thought into that. And it needs to be happening in the beginning because that's what you can't really change. Mm. 
right? So your brand is very, very important. The next very, very important thing is there's a term in the retail trade called DIFOT, which is deliver in full on time. Mm -hmm. Now, if a customer orders something and you accept the order, you've got to fulfill it Mm -hmm. and it's got to be on time. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they can't run their business properly. Mm -hmm. So the biggest... The way I find it easy to compete in Australia. So in New Zealand, when I was in business, DIFOT wasn't really talked about Mm -hmm. because everybody did it. Mm. Kiwis are pretty competitive people and pretty good at their doers, yeah. So when I went to Aussie, Mm. the biggest thing I found was that Australian businesses of any size spent half their time thinking up an excuse why they didn't manage to deliver whatever they promised. Mm. And for me, it was easy because if I said I was going to do something, I did it. Mm. And then your customers go, they they rely on you. Mm. They don't ask what price or whatever, so long as it's value. And that's, so that's the second pillar. So brand, die for it or deliver what you promise. Thirdly, and this is just as important because a lot of people get this wrong too, you've got to make margin. You've got to understand your cost. You've got to understand your overhead. You've got to understand the whole thing. And you've got to be not embarrassed at making a profit. You say in the book, zero to 60, which I love, by the way, you have a thing about two plus two equals seven, don't you? Just explain that. (laughs) So I love it. And it was something that I just, because quite often, some of my best thoughts and stuff decisions came when I was wearing gumboots. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, you know, like when you take your gumboots off and put your shoes on and the shirt and tie, you start talking too much, yeah. not thinking and reacting quickly. So the two plus two equals seven comes from... So you, we all go to school and we all get taught by people, and this is not a, a, a stab at teachers, but we all get taught by teachers who have never actually left school Mm -hmm. uh, uh, mainly Mm. right so they've never really been in the big wide world they've looked after they get bloody 12 weeks holidays a year and i can imagine people going that's bullshit blah 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 but some of my best friends are teachers and we discuss it or principals we discuss it a bit right because the poor other guys are out there working they're only getting two or three or four weeks a year off teachers have a pretty good gig in my opinion anyway so Two plus two equals four. We all know that. That's what they teach us. And it's true. Nothing wrong. Arithmetically, it's absolutely accurate. Mm -hmm. Perfect. But in real life, uh, I say that if you take all of your costs and overheads and stuff in your business, and it's two plus two equals four, and this is where the third thing comes in the margin, a lot of people will sell their services or provide, think they're free services or whatever, and they'll sell it for four. You go bankrupt. Yeah, so you go bankrupt. And the worst thing about going bankrupt is that you'll take other people with you, Mm. and that's not right. That's not good. So two plus two equals five, right? That just means that you're going to go bankrupt slowly. Mm -hmm. Because in business there are things that you don't take account of, tax, uh, workers' compensation, insurance claims, whatever it is, there are things that you do not foresee, nobody sees coming, so you need to have a fair old buffer there. And, you know, you take the bushfires in Australia, you take all these things that come and just, fuck, who saw that coming? So, two plus two equals five, you're just going to go bankrupt slower. Now, two plus two equals six, that's fine. 
You're going to have a nice detached house. The kids are going to go to private school. You're going to go on holiday to Fiji once a year or Hawaii in a special year. You're going to probably drive a Volvo <laughs> or or a Mercedes or something, you know. Um, and you're going to have, and your mother will be very proud of you, mm. right? Mm. You'll you'll be good, and there's nothing wrong with that, mm. right? But the real trick in business: mm. two plus two equals eight, right? Mm. Give your customer a discount because everybody wants a deal. Mm. Sell it for seven. Make them feel good. Mm-hmm. Make them feel good. They're happy mm. and you're making profit. Mm. And that's what two plus two equals seven really means. It's obviously not correct, mm. but it's the philosophy of, you know, when you're in business, you need to double whatever it costs you. Mm. And then if you've got a bit of slack, you can, you can build your business. Before we move to cars, because that's been the parallel for you between business and, and uh, cars and motorsports right throughout your life for, for that matter. I want to just deal with the Daryl Lee chapter for a second, if I can. Is it true? I can recall Julia Gillard getting on national television and, you know, we need to save this great Aussie company and, and they were... Uh, you know, had such great history in the confectionery business in Australia. Maybe the model was was old, as you discovered. But that was a factor. I think you, did one of your sons get on the phone and say, Dad, I think we can do something here? And was it true that your mum said, where am I going to get my peanut brittle? Or is that is that a, is that a fictitious story? <laughs> no, it's, she didn't say peanut brittle. Was it? Was it? Um, but what happened was, you're quite right, Clark, actually, yeah. um, who was in limbo, had done his job in the pet food land. Mm-hmm. He was a dry food guy, done a good job in Dubbo, kind of looking for something else to do. Mm-hmm. Clark had said, you know, this Daryl Lee thing might be worth looking at. And Rex, my GM, said to me, we should have a look at Dar I said, no way. Like, you know, we're not going to fix a broken business that other people have tried fixing. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's too hard. I, I don't want to do that. We've got better things to do. And uh, you're right that Julia Gillard went on TV. And after that, my mum phoned me up and said, oh, Tony, you know, like Dar has gone into bankrupt or whatever she said. Um, I said, yeah, I know. And she said, "You, you should buy that. You'd be." I said, "Mum, it's buggered. It's you know, yeah. it's a big job." And she says, "Oh, you, that would be you would easy manage that. That would be right up your street. You'd enjoy that and stuff." <laughs> and I don't know whether Clark had phoned her up and teed her up or something. <laughs> anyway, the truth is, I'm thinking, "Nah, I'm not doing that." So I went in the next day and I said to Rex, "Mate." Let's have a look at Daryl Lee. Mm-hmm. And we went down and had a look at it. It was an absolute shambles. Mm-hmm. It was, to be honest, a disgrace that a family had let it go. Like that business had supplied the Lee family with, if it wasn't 17, it was 27 properties in Sydney. Um, the business needed 11 million bucks to write it, to fix it. The family didn't want to put any money into it because they were, you know, didn't want to risk it because they'd been used to money coming out of the business, not going into the business. And the management team that they had were pretty um, buggered, really. Mm. Um, and, 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 and yet the product was it's good. The product was good, but wasn't good enough. Okay. Yeah. I mean, what they were doing, they were selling the product that they made fundamentally 
through their own stores. Yep. And when you sell stuff through your own stores, you really don't have to compete mm. because you can put it where you like and you can price it however you like mm. and you don't really have to compete with anybody on the shelf beside you, mm. right? So the punter that goes into the shop, they have to buy something from the shop, basically. Mm. So it's a bit of a free license to do what you like. And that's why outlet shops have sprouted mm. and pop factory shops because you get rid of the shit that mm. you can't sell, you can't compete with. Mm -hmm. um, not the shit, but you get rid of the product that you can't mm. compete with. So the first thing we did, we, uh, we said we're not taking on any of the retail shops. They're gone. Um, they were, there was only one out of 65 making a profit. And when I say profit, it was making $100,000 a year. Like, that's not a profit. Mm. Um, so we shut all of those. We, the, the, the product count went from 700 and whatever to 85. The staff went from 700 or 500 and something to 85. 85 being the magic number. There is no magic number, but that was the numbers. And we set about writing the business. And I can tell you that within... Uh, Within three months, the business was losing $11 million a year. Mm -hmm. And within three months, uh, it was making money. Back in the black? Yeah, back in the black. That's amazing. Um, I, I didn't think so, and I still don't think so. It was just good strategy and, and positive direction, and this is what we're doing. This is, how, this is what will fix it. And I guess what helped me was that I didn't have any... Uh, love of um, chocolate rock or whatever it was. I didn't care. Mm. It was, the product had to be good enough to be to compete, mm -hmm. and it had to have a good enough margin in order for us to make it. Because mm. a lot of the products they were making, it was negative margin. Mm -hmm. So the next thing I did was I went to the retailers. Well, in at the beginning mm -hmm. of that, when I shut the retail shops, I went to the. I personally, along with um, my sales guys, went to the retailers and said. We're going to shut all these shops. Do you want to stock Daddily on your shelves? Knowing full well that they would like a piece of that mm. Daddily business, uh, like sales. And uh, each and every one of them said, yes, that's what we would like to do. And we got a, a good, but you know, the thing that really did it mm. was because they knew I was connected or owned VIP Pet Foods and VIP Pet Foods, had a die-fought rate of 98%, which is, which is like most people struggle to get to 92, 95. You know, like that's a, we had an average score of 98%. And the supermarket said, yes, we will give you space because we know that you won't run us out of stock. Amazing. Yeah. So, and then, I don't know, five, five years later or, or four years, whatever, I don't, I'm not good with that time stuff. Because one, you know, I don't split my weeks with weekends. It's just one rolls into the next. Um, and uh, sold it for $200 million, um, and I still have a, a share in it and stuff like that. But, you know, another interesting story. When it's, I know you wanted to talk about Dali. Dali's a great story. I still have 10%, and I still go and see what the guys are doing every so often. Now, as an ex-owner, you think, oh, I don't really think you should be doing that. But do you know what? They're doing a good job. And if you stand back and look, it's fine. Mm. You know, perhaps it's not what I would have done, mm. um, but the job that they're doing is perfect. So as an investor, mm. I'm happy. Mm. But just when I sold VIP, right, I sold it for $410 million. It cost me startup costs and stuff, you know. 
It was good. Paid an awful lot of tax. You know, it was it was crazy. The, the government wins in all of these deals, right? They're the ones that really win. Um, anyway, so I sold it for 410, but I kept 10% of it, right? Just because my theory there is if you've got a good business, a bona fide good business, and somebody wants to buy it, if you can, keep 10%. If they're a good operator, mm-hmm. keep 10% because it's a business that you know and you know the ins and outs and the ups and downs. And if it's a good business, they'll do the work for you and grow the value, mm. right? So 10% I kept of uh, VIP Pet Foods and they had all sorts of grand schemes and off it went. Two years later, Chris Hadley phoned me up and said, hey, TQ, I think we could sell this thing. He says, it's not ready to be sold, but I think we can sell it. And I said, really? I said, oh, good on you. Um, you don't think you should keep it and get a, a you know another year under the belts because it's got some good things happening? No, no, it's the Chinese stroke American uh, conglomerate uh, syndicate. I says oh, okay, fine. He says the only thing is um, you're going to have to help me sell it because the Chinese want to talk to the original owner and you know it's it's the Chinese way, I think. Anyway, I said yeah, no problem, mate. Yeah, no, no, no issue whatsoever. Well. Whatever's good for the cause, I'm, I'm in. I said, "How much are you going? How much? You, you know, what's the deal? Because what they'd done is they'd paid four hundred million for it. They'd spent a hundred million on acquisitions. The the turnover had gone up a hundred million, but the profit remained the same, okay. which is what mm. big companies do. You know, that's how they work. Anyway, he said, "I reckon we can get one point two billion." I says, "No." <laughs> I says, "Mate." No way. I says, that's a waste of time. No, he says, uh, no, he says, I, I think we can do it. I said, you're joking. Anyway, but another few weeks went by. It was October. Um, and uh, so the deal was I had to go down and spend an afternoon with this Chinese group, you know, the round table sort of thing. Well, I'm here to tell you that was probably one of the worst afternoons. Oh, I, I enjoyed it for the first hour. Mm-hmm. But the second hour, when they went over the same things again, I, I was losing focus. The third hour, when they went over the same things again, and then the next half hour, when they tried to go over the same things again, I sort of cut it short. I was getting, I was getting short at this stage and saying, hey, you know, I've got to go, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so I left the room, I left the, the meeting, and I phoned Chris the next day. I said, mate, that was terrible. That was an awful afternoon I spent. He says, I know. He says, I spent five and a half hours the day before. I said, I said you didn't want to tell me? He says, no, I couldn't tell you. Anyway, here's the story. We sold it for a billion dollars. Amazing. Yeah. Second so roll that, of the dollar. So that 40 million investment became 100 within two years, you know? And... That was the easiest money I ever made, you know, because I didn't have much to do with it when they, it was under their stewardship and stuff. So I don't know. There's an old saying, the first million's the hardest one to make and the rest come easier, and I guess that's true. So during that time, I had used motorsport mm. to promote my brands, yeah. right? Because and it worked for you, didn't it? It, it worked marvelous, marvelously uh, for me because I... I stayed in there, I went, you know, I sort of stayed, hung around, Mm. and I was lucky Mm. to be involved in Shane's return to V8s. That was a 
a lucky move. Yeah, Shane. And then for Will Davidson, John Webb to win Bathurst with Shane right behind them. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't on the phone to Shane at the time, so he'd stay behind. Mm-hmm. But for them to win Bathurst, I thought was a great exit for the V8 thing for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so look, motorsport in business for me, whilst, you know, uh, people would say that, oh, he's it's for personal enjoyment. It's actually not. I've used it. Um, for the businesses that I've got. Mm. And I've done very, very well out of the businesses that I've had. Is there any truth to the story that one of the marketing bosses of a big Australian grocery company wanted you to do a traditional TV advertisement? You wanted to stick with motorsport. You figured out what state this bloke lived in and you bought a limited campaign in that state to sort of appease him but kept going with motorsport. Is that what you did? Uh, yeah, well, there was lots of things. And, yes, that's true. And, and I used to find out where the buyers would live and I would put a billboard up on their, <laughs> yeah, on their way home or to work um, because they, were, they apply a lot of pressure to spend your money yeah. uh, to build their business. That's yeah. how it works. And, yeah, it's a joint thing. But it's a kind of win in in small letters for you and a massive win big letters for them. That's that's how their model works. Um, But yes, no, it wouldn't be... I didn't do it once. I probably did it three or four times where I would find out where the buyer lived and then work out that he would see that billboard on his way to work or his wife or somebody would... You know, he would see it and then tell him that we had a national campaign going on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and the same with television and stuff like that. Although television... Um, never really worked. So I remember spending um, $117,000, which was a lot of money in those Mm. days, with uh, television in Victoria, you know, Target Victoria, Mm. um, because that's where the buyer of calls was that was saying you need to spend money on television. So I spent 117 grand in Victoria. And you know what? I never saw the advert. I don't live in Victoria. Nobody ever said to me, oh, I saw your ad on TV, Mm. right? So, and... Almost similar or concurrently, um, a bit, well, not concurrent, but a bit after that, a month after that, Fitzy, Peter Fitzgerald, who used to run a Porsche against Jim and stuff, Porsche Cup, he was always stuck for funds, you know. He was the the proverbial, you know, he was an accountant and I could never work out how he was even in motorsport. (laughs) Anyway, I decided to sponsor Fitzy. Two things happened, I can tell you. I sponsored Fitzy. Um, and he, for Bathurst and Indy, mm. it was 10 grand or something uh, for his bonnet or the front of his car. And at Bathurst and Indy, the cameras are quite often up, or were yeah. quite often up high. Mm. So in Fitzy won Bathurst and he won Indy. And the, after Bathurst, I would have had, on the Monday, um, I would have had 10, 12 phone calls from people or you didn't phone me up to tell me, but if I'd been on the phone buying beef or, mm. or something, they'd say, oh, I saw your car went in Bathurst the other day and stuff. And I thought, I thought to myself, wow, this is much better for branding mm. than just having a TVC, a, mm. a normal TVC. So that's, and the other golden bit was at Canberra Street Race. Do you remember then? Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, Supercars. Yes, Cameron McLean, yes. right? He was our private year and we sponsored his bonnet and I think it was $7,000. Jamie Blakey was yes. his manager or whatever. And he, and I was reluctant. Ah, oh, nah, nah. Anyway, I finally did it. And as luck would have it, I'm pretty sure they did the top 15 shootout. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and Cameron was 15th, right? So he just snuck in. He was the first car on the track. And God bless him, Barry Sheen was commentating, right? And Barry, uh, they were talking up this camera guy. He's a private deer and he's in the 15. And well, the first turn at Canberra was a hard right, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, Cameron didn't make it, smacked into the wall on the left hand side, bent the front wheel, but carried on. But he carried on at snail space. <laughs> And, and of course, being television and stuff, they, they had to talk about Cameron and his new, his new sponsor on the front, VIP Pet Foods. It was golden. It was, you know, so Jim Richards will always tell you, you can have as much talent as you like, but you need a fair bit of luck as well. And businesses like that too, you know, you can have a good idea, great product, great everything, but you need a bit of luck too. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't harm to have a bit of luck, good luck. That's the end of part one of my chat with Tony Quinn. Make sure you check out part two where he gets deeper into the passion for cars and racing. From Target Tasmania to some seriously cool and very rare wheels in the collection. Rusty's Garage is recorded for Podcast One. Written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If there's someone you want me to talk to on Rusty's Garage, get in touch on the show page at podcastoneaustralia.com.au. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely. Listener.